0: Production made possible in part by MedPlus Advantage. You're listening to Radio Rounds, a talk show created and hosted by medical students and physicians in training, where today's stories are told by tomorrow's doctors. Coming up on today's episode, I sit down with Dr. Atul Grover of the American Association of Medical Colleges to discuss his thoughts on the impact that a recent, highly anticipated report submitted by the Institute of Medicine will have on the future of medical residency training... In America.
1: Clearly there are things we can do better in educating physicians and other health professionals for the future, but to completely dismantle the system, which is essentially what the IOM is calling for, a complete dismantling of the graduate medical education system, would
0: be a huge mistake. More from this candid conversation about what these proposed changes could really mean for physician training and patient care across the country Right now, on Radio Rounds. Welcome to Radio Rounds, everyone. I'm John Corker. Today, we continue our exploration of the meaning and potential impact of a recent landmark report published by the Institute of Medicine's Committee on the Governance and Financing of Graduate Medical Education, or GME. As a reminder from Part 1 of this series, the Institute of Medicine is an independent, nonprofit organization that works outside of government to provide unbiased and authoritative advice to decision-makers and the public. According to their website, the IOM asks and answers the nation's most pressing questions about health and health care. In 2012, recognizing an impending crisis in access to health care across the country, the IOM commissioned a special committee to examine how physicians are trained during their three to seven years between medical school graduation and independent practice, called residency. Recently, after two years of research and debate, the IOM committee finally published their recommendations for an improved, more sustainable GME program. These recommendations have been highly controversial, including but not limited to calling for a freeze and a 10-year phase-out of federal support for GME, increased accountability and transparency measures for this support, and for the creation of two new federal committees to oversee the governance and financing of GME going forward. Today, in part two of this ongoing series, I sit down with Dr. Atul Grover, the Chief Public Policy Officer at the AAMC, a not-for-profit, Washington, D.C.-based association representing all 141 accredited U.S. medical schools, nearly 400 major teaching hospitals and health systems, including 51 VA medical centers, as well as 90 academic and scientific societies nationwide. Dr. Grover concurrently holds faculty appointments at the George Washington University School of Medicine and the Johns Hopkins University Bloomberg School of Public Health. Previously, he has held positions in healthcare finance and applied economics consulting, as well as in the U.S. Public Health Services Health Resources and Service Administration National Center for Health Workforce Analysis. I started off the interview by asking Dr. Grover to share his big picture thoughts on the importance and potential future impact. Of this report. Dr. Grover, thanks so much for joining us on Radio Rounds today.
1: That's my pleasure, Dr. Corker.
0: Can you start off by just taking a minute to explain for our listeners a little bit of the background and significance from your perspective of the Institute of Medicine's recent report on the governance and financing of graduate medical education in America?
1: The, the Institute of Medicine is a very august body. Um, you know people work their lifetimes to be recognized to be named to the the IOM part of the National Academy of Sciences. And I think anytime they voice an opinion or um, put out a report, it's something that we all need to listen to. And so I think people are taking the report very seriously. I think the challenge with the IOM's recent report on graduate medical education is that, There are fabulous observations in there. And in your language and my language, I would say the right diagnosis, but the prescription is wrong. And so clearly there are things we can do better in educating physicians and other health professionals for the future, but to completely dismantle the system, which is essentially what the IOM is calling for, a complete dismantling of the graduate medical education system would be a huge mistake. And I know that I talk to my friends from around the country and around the world, and when they think about the best place in the world to train to be a physician for the future, they think about coming to the United States. So I have serious respect for the IOM and their views on things. I have serious questions about their prescription for how we really change graduate medical education and improve the quality of physicians and other health professionals that we train for the country.
0: Now, one of the more controversial bases for that prescription that you mentioned of of this committee was that they found no credible evidence to the claim that there's a physician shortage, either current or impending in America. Now, that runs counter to the AAMCs, the American Association of Medical Colleges, data indicating a current shortage that they project will increase of, over the next 5, 10 years even further if nothing changes. Where does the AAMC's data and projections come from, and where do you think the disconnect lies between that data and the findings of the report?
1: I, I think it's a really interesting finding for the IOM to say there's no evidence of a physician shortage. I will also point out that they didn't find any evidence that there's not a physician shortage. They really stayed pretty much mum on the issue. And I, I think when we've gotten... I, I've done workforce projections for a long time now, uh, almost two decades in my professional career, and I, I think we haven't always gotten it right, but when we've really gotten it wrong in terms of what we expect from the physician workforce or health workforce in general is when we've made major assumptions about the way the world will change. And I would say that a lot of what's going on now and for the uh, co-chairs of the IOM committee, doctors Berwick and Walensky, to say, well, we don't think there's evidence of a shortage. It's all based upon an assumption that the U.S. medical care system is going to change drastically. The WMC and you can fault us for not making those major assumptions, but the WMC has said, let's take what we have now in terms of the current medical care system let's look at the use of primary care physicians, nurse practitioners, PAs, medical subspecialists, surgical subspecialists and the number of visits that Americans use today and end up applying what we know about the population of the future that we're going to have roughly twice as many people over the age of 65 in the next 30 years compared with what we had 10 years ago. What does that utilization look like? Well, it looks then like we're going to have a shortage of 130,000 physicians spread pretty equally across primary care and subspecialty physicians. Is it going to be exactly 130,000? No, we're going to be wrong. But directionally, every single scenario that we can come up with demonstrates that there will be too few physicians to provide care for a growing aging population. Now, all of that is not going to be provided by physicians. Some of it's not even provided by people. So we know that um, what we are suggesting today is that we train enough physicians to meet roughly a third of that shortage. Let's train another thirty or 40,000 physicians over the next decade. Uh, and then let's figure out how to make care more efficient, how to figure out how to use, use all the other health professionals on our team of health care providers. Let's figure out if we can actually do something with connected health and telemedicine. All of this is going to be important because we're not going to be able to figure out how to cure all of these shortages with a silver bullet. And it's not going to happen by just training more physicians. However, training more physicians has to be a part of the solution.
0: Obviously, this committee was tasked with not only uh, looking at the governance of of graduate medical education, but also... The funding. And and one of the main points of contention right now with federal funding for graduate medical education is the fact that it may or may not be um, as tracked and accountable and transparent as some would like it to be. In fact, one of the main recommendations of the committee was to tie a greater percentage of of federal funding for graduate medical education to new accountability measures, if you will, uh, on the part of resident physicians and their residency programs. To your knowledge, what will these measures entail and and how specifically will federal GME funding be made more transparent and accountable?
1: Right now, all we have to go on is the recommendations from the committee. And the IOM GME committee recommended that roughly 30% of current federal funding for graduate medical education be used to fund two new bureaucracies in the federal government. Uh, that would look at GME, and there would be a GME policy committee in the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services and another committee in the Department of Health and Human Services. And so I I don't know about you and your listeners, I don't have a whole lot of faith, that uh, two new committees uh, within the federal bureaucracy funded by $3 billion a year in Medicare funding would actually do a better job than we have now in terms of making uh, residency programs in the healthcare system accountable for uh, what our federal investment is. The AAMC has supported uh, a number of bills, um, uh, particularly in in the House, H.R. 1201. Uh, which is co-sponsored by Representative Aaron Schock of Illinois and Representative uh, Allison Schwartz of uh, Pennsylvania, a a bipartisan bill that would actually call for greater accountability in GME funding and tie 2% of Medicare's GME funding to accountability metrics. And the accountability metrics are not necessarily precisely determined right now, but they are in the broad categories that I think we all agree on. Whether you're talking to the ACGME, the accreditors, or whether you're talking to the Medicare Payment Advisory Commission, or whether you're talking to AAMC's members, I think we all agree that there are some broad general categories which we ought to be able to prove to the American public and our patients that we are taking seriously in the training of the next generation of physicians. And they would be things like, are we training our physicians to be members or quarterbacks of a team? Are we training them to work in a variety of settings, not just in the inpatient hospital setting, but also in ambulatory surgical centers, in outpatient clinics, in community health centers? Are we actually training them how to improve quality and how to improve the system for their patients? Are we training them to be meaningful users of information, whether that is information technology, or all the information that we now are flooded with on a daily basis in our practices. All these things are measures that I think most sensible people would agree on, and it also would put a reasonable amount of funding at risk, funding in line with every other value-based purchasing part of Medicare uh, into the GME system. So somewhere between 1% and 3% at risk. We've also in that same bill in HR 1201 supported greater transparency Uh, and what we believe within our educational institutions and our teaching hospitals, our medical schools, is that if taxpayers really knew how much we were spending on things like level one trauma centers and on burn units and on care for children with disabilities and on caring for inpatient uh, psychiatric patients and geriatric patients, that they would see that the investment we're making is far less uh, than perhaps we ought to be making. And so while I think the IOM's committee made some interesting recommendations around Medicare's funding for graduate medical education and for uh, our teaching hospitals and um, health education systems, they didn't go the extra mile to say, you know what, this is really something that we all ought to step up and make an effort at. So it shouldn't just be Medicare or Medicaid. It ought to be private payers. It ought to be foundations. It ought to be our institutions that are already investing in training the next generation of health professionals. So uh, we are very much in favor of greater accountability and greater transparency, and we think that if we had that, people would actually see we're doing a pretty good job.
0: And recently, you, Reinhardt, a, a popular contributor to the New York Times, wrote an article uh, basically challenging graduate medical education or the training of resident physicians as a, quote, public good. Now, you spoke earlier about the necessary investment uh, or perceived necessary investment of the federal government in the training of resident physicians. What are your thoughts on this idea of, of whether or not uh, resident physician training and, and the work of resident physicians constitutes a true public good?
1: So Dr. Reinhardt is a brilliant and um, incredibly entertaining guy. And his uh, pieces are always thought-provoking, if not always 100% on the mark. So what I would say is that Dr. Reinhardt approaches this from the luxury of being an economist. Economists define things as uh, very strictly public goods or not public goods? So are they universally accessible to all people? That's the first problem. So one of the problems that Dr. Reinhardt has is that two-thirds of the funding, which he says are not for public goods, is actually for public goods, things like trauma centers and burn centers and psychiatric care and all kinds of emergency care that really are there 24-7 for anybody who needs it, regardless of ability to pay. The other third, for physician training, I would say that as an economist, he has the luxury of being able to say, in the most technical terms, it is not a public good to train physicians because there are always inequalities in access for medical care. But it is a societal good to actually have training of well-prepared physicians and other health professionals that I would argue we ought to be investing more in not less, and even if Dr. Reinhart and other economists say, well, they're not equally available to every single person in society, I think they should acknowledge that over half of the health care bills in this country are paid for with public funds, and so it is in the public's interest to ensure that whether you're on Medicare or Medicaid or somehow utterly publicly insured, that you have access to a well-trained, well-qualified physician or nurse practitioner or physician assistant or physical therapist, those are public goods. Uh, And at the very least, they're societal goods. So uh, I haven't been a health economist for a long time, and it's it's been a couple of years. But I was one, and I can tell you that with the economists I trained with, there was a distinction between what is strictly a public good versus what is a societal good. And I would argue that having well-trained health professionals is at least a societal good, if not a technically correct economic public good. And if you think about the $3 trillion a year we spend on health care versus the $10 billion a year that Medicare invests in ensuring that there is a future physician population to care for Medicare beneficiaries, it's a drop in the bucket. And I think... The recommendations of the IOM committee would do far more harm than good in their current form.
0: Dr. Grover, thanks so much for joining us on Radio Rounds today.
1: Thanks, Dr. Corker. I appreciate your calling me.
0: That was Dr. Atul Grover, Chief Public Policy Officer at the AAMC. For more information on the IOM, a complete rundown of their report on GME, as well as a helpful webinar hosted by the chairwomen of the committee, please visit our website, www.radiorounds.org, where we'll include a direct link to the appropriate portion of the IOM website. Join us in the coming weeks for part three of this ongoing series. We'll speak with Dr. Amitav Chandra, an economist and director of health policy research at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government. Dr. Chandra served as a member of the IOM's Committee on the Governance and Financing of GME, as well as a primary author of their report. As an influential member of the committee, Dr. Chandra will get a chance to share his insider's point of view on the rationale and wisdom behind these proposed changes to medical residency training in America. In the meantime, remember that you can download podcasts of all past episodes. Just search the iTunes store for Radio Rounds or visit www.radiorounds.org. You can also contact our team via email, like us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter. All of that information at radiorounds.org. Production made possible in part by MedPlus Advantage. Sponsored by the American Medical Association. Visit us at MedPlusAdvantage.com. AMA Insurance is pleased to introduce an individual disability insurance plan called Essentials for MedPlus Advantage participants. Through this plan, eligible graduating medical students have a special one-time opportunity to apply for high-quality individual disability insurance with no intrusive or time-consuming medical exams and only a few basic questions, and with discounted premiums. Apply now as the enrollment period ends soon. Of course, please remember that the views and opinions expressed on Radio Rounds are not representative of the views and opinions of the partners of Radio Rounds. Thanks so much for joining us, everyone, and have a great week. For our entire staff here at Radio Rounds, I'm John Corker, and one day, I'll be your doctor.